1: Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, April 3rd, 2019. This is the 211th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, I have a special on-the-road show from South Beach Wine and Food Festival 2019. But first, as I do in every show, I'm going to start out with my PR tip, Later, we will have a few exclusive interviews from the festival and my solo dining experience. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to connect the dots. You see, although the world may seem large, when it comes to relationships, especially in a specific industry, it's actually quite a small world. We are all linked one way to another or another, And figuring out how so can help us move forward, both professionally and socially. Remember six degrees of separation, or rather, Kevin Bacon, the idea that any two people are six or fewer acquaintance links apart? Well, it's true, so believe in connections. That's my tip today. Now, I have a special on-the-road episode on the 18th Annual Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival, which took place from February 20th to 24th, 2019 in South Beach, Florida. Now, I usually attend this event as it's in my hometown of Miami. I think I've been about 10 times. I haven't counted, but that's my guesstimate. And I like to call it spring break for chefs. It's it's a good time in South Beach. So this five-day festival, which was founded by Lee Schrager, brought some of the world's best chefs together for more than 100 unique collaborative dinners, wine tastings, beach parties, and cooking demonstrations. To date, the festival has raised more than $28 million for the Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at FIU and serves as an interactive educational platform for more than 1,200 students who help make the festival happen every year. The festival's mission is to eat, drink, and educate. The events I attended included Barilla's Italian Bites on the Beach, Heineken Light Burger Bash presented by Schweiden Sons, and Wine Spectator's Best of the Best at the Fountain Blue. I also hit many of the after parties where there are many chefs in attendance and industry friends. It was a good time. Okay, so what's happening on the show today? I have three interviews with festival participants. They are Matthew Acarino, executive chef at SBQR in San Francisco, John Tezar, executive chef and partner at Knife in Dallas, Texas, and Adina Sussman, cookbook author, food writer, recipe and product developer, and consultant based in Tel Aviv. Now, they all cooked at the festival, they all cook for a living, they all have written cookbooks, and I've known all of them for a really long time. I think our, our histories go back about 20 years. They're also really great people and work very hard, so I'm excited to, to do this show with them. Okay, so first up, we have my interview with Matthew Ocarino, the nationally recognized executive chef of SBQR in San Francisco. Born in the Midwest and raised on the East Coast, Matthew moved west to California in 2007. He had originally hoped to become a professional cyclist until a leg injury turned his passion for cooking into a career. Matthew's unique culinary style draws inspiration from his Italian heritage, personal experience, and classical training with some of America's best chefs. He has been nominated five consecutive times for the James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef West. He was named Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chef in 2014, and he wrote a cookbook for SBQR, Modern Italian Food & Wine, that he co-authored, and it came out in October 2012. So that's a little of his background. Now, we're going to jump in with my conversation with him. We talk about sourcing ingredients, what led him to California, what he was doing at the Wine and Food Festival in South Beach, and more. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Here's me and Matthew Acarino.
2: There's something magical about fire and food. Like the more the more rustic, the cooking the cooking method, I mean, I, we say rustic, but it's like, cause I stand in front of a gas stove all day.
3: You know, right. So
2: to, there's fire all around me. I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded by fire, but but the way that the fire interacts in something like a wood fire or even just in like a brick oven, it's just something different because you can see, like you're watching all of the convection currents of the heat and all the smoke rising and the smoke's above the food and below with that intense heat, which is impossible really to replicate in the same way with the bits of flavor that are imparted and and like sort of the aromas there's something really visceral about it that I think like connects me more deeply to cooking food that way and I've always felt that way so even though I've always come from like a really high end French inspired background I mean I never cooked Italian food before I got to SPQR really? yeah like I mean I cooked in Italy so I guess that's Italian food but I mean I was in Italy so it's just it's Italian food because that's where you are it's not Italian food because they intended to be it's because that's all they do and I think here in the United States, we have these notions that, like, I'm cooking Chinese food, I'm cooking Italian food, I'm cooking French food, but I mean, we're really just cooking American food. I've always thought that whatever I cooked was American food, because we're in America. So no matter what I do to it, it's yeah. still American food. True. Right. And so, so, and so I could be inspired by Italian food, which means I'm going to bring maybe a few more ingredients or a few more ideas from there to here. But I still have to do some level of interpretation, and I think it's, sometimes that's where a lot of the interesting for me, especially the interesting things have come out of, where we might try to get different chicories or uh, you know, punterelle or like things that would be native to Italy in terms of growing there, Romanesco cauliflower, which was, you know, for, I remember the first time I went to Rome and I saw Romanesco cauliflower. It's this geodesic, like crazy prism. Looking green cauliflower that was perfect, laying in the markets there, and I'd never seen it before, and I was like, "What? What is this?" And now we have it, you know, as readily available as cauliflower. So those things, you know, we're able to bring those things in and, and sort of assimilate them and adapt them and, and turn them into something. And so I don't worry like what, I don't worry about what Italians do with Romanesco cauliflower. I just worry about what I do with it. But it's for sure not in a native ingredient to California.
1: Right. But it is now. Even even though you do have access to amazing ingredients being that you're in California compared to other parts of the world. Right.
2: Which is why I cook in California. People always ask, you know, I I love the climate. I'm a big outdoor person. So I love the ability to be outdoors pretty much year round without snow and without, you know, extreme heat for the most part. So we, we have a really moderate climate, which is great. But that also happens to be really great for growing food.
1: So when did you move out to San Francisco and start with
2: SBQR? So I was out in Los Angeles running a restaurant for Tom Colicchio and left, and I kind of said, I could stay in LA, I could go back to New York where I'm from, or I can go somewhere else. And somewhere I ended up going somewhere else, and somewhere else happened to be San Francisco. But what had always piqued my interest about California in the first place was, as I worked for Thomas Keller, I helped open Per Se in the Time Warner building in New York City. And they had closed the French Laundry and brought the entire French Laundry staff to New York, pretty much, to to open that restaurant. And we would go through and order, let's say artichokes. We would order six cases of artichokes from from our companies. They would bring the artichokes, we would pick through and keep one case. And I, I remember thinking like, this has got to be maddening, maddening for these delivery drivers and these companies. But they did it because, and we had to have the best. And even though I would sit there and go through the six cases with the receiver and pick out the one case of 30 or 40 artichokes that was any good and then bring those into the restaurant, the sous chefs and guys from the French Laundry would be there and they would say, these are okay. And I'm thinking, do like, you know how long it just took me to pick all this stuff? Right. But if you come to California, you'll see what we mean. And so that really planted a seed in me that... When Tom Calicchio came to me and asked me to go open a restaurant in L.A. for him, I kind of jumped at the chance because I wanted to go out there. We had been bringing produce from the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. We had somebody shopping for us.
1: What restaurant was that?
2: That was Kraft. Oh, okay. So so we we literally had refrigerator-sized boxes of produce coming out of Santa Monica into New York, especially when the, the New York green market wasn't as productive in the wintertime. So we were really getting a lot of good stuff. We had somebody shopping for us in that market. And so to head to LA and connect more deeply with that market and that product was was great for me. So I jumped at the chance, went out there, opened a restaurant, I actually hired a full-time forager. Um, her name's Carrie Clasby. She's a really interesting woman. Um, but she would go to 30 or 40 local farmer's markets for me and bring all of it to me on a truck and bring it up to the restaurant. And so, you know, we had a sort of a regular order of stuff that we liked and she knew that we liked, and then she would sort of intuitively buy things that she would think that we'd like. So you yeah. know, it's like, I, sorry, I remember she was the first person to show me a finger lime. Um, there's this you know, wonderful uh, uh, citrus farmer, Jim Churchill up in Ohio, and he grows these little mini kishu tangerines, which are a little seedless tangerine, they're amazing. And he also grows avocados, but he was, started growing finger limes. So he just had a couple of trees back then, I and mean, we're going back 10 plus years. And so she brings these things. Now, I'd never seen this thing. I'd heard of them. I'd never seen them in real life. Here's this thing. And I just remember, we, we kept thinking, like, each little finger lime, which is, you know, kind of one-fifth the size of a regular lime, was, like, $7. And now you can buy a, a pint, like, a pint right. of raspberries for $7. Because there's so many more being grown. Uh, but it was just really an amazing time to go there and have all of these things laid before you and connect with them. And as I was working there... For the couple of years that I did, I increasingly expanded as every chef you know would identify with that you have this you know I don't want to say greed, but you have this incessant need for ingredient, more you know more interesting stuff, more stuff. How do I bring more and more new and better things into my menu? So you're always on. The, I mean, you're like the, at the top of the pole, on the lookout. You know, looking out into the distance to see where can I get this stuff from. And so, of course, my network expanded. The group of farmers that I worked with expanded, and that pushed me up into the Bay Area. And so I started taking trips up into the Bay Area to to meet farmers, to, to visit farms, to look at those kind of things and try to get those ingredients through a network back down to L.A. so that I could have even more. And then, you know, and that's when I look back at what, you know, New York is the absolute center, you know, of, of, of a hub of, of where things are coming through. So we would order produce and things would come from Israel and Europe, right. and, you know, all over America, South America, North America. And it was just really interesting to be in California and have all of those things. If I want grapefruit from Texas in California, I have to ask for it. Because my local, even my local sort of regular produce guys that aren't doing much special, let's say, buy California stuff, because it's easier.
1: So, Going back, we met when you were at RM.
2: Yes, all those years ago.
1: So I was thinking, is that was that 2001 or before
2: Yeah, it's around that period. Two thousand two, something yeah. that period of time. So. Rick had at- left Oceana and
1: Yeah. And I was I was just getting into doing PR and I was working for a woman Peggy Taglarino mm-hmm. and wrote a press release wrote some bios on you and P Cheong, I know yeah good friend of mine now but that's that's where that's it's it's amazing to think back to that's when we met and so and you've worked at, I mean you're you've already you've already mentioned a bunch of working at per se but you worked you worked for RM Oceana would olives too or yeah no. Todd English yeah
2: Charlie Palmer for a brief time
4: Incred-
1: um, I mean incredible amount of experience so but it all led you now to doing what you're you're doing your into Italian food which as you said you weren't you weren't you weren't doing Italian before but is that what you want to stick with now
2: you know I, I I'd never i never like I said before I'd never really cooked Italian food I never thought of myself as an Italian chef and I guess I still don't um, but my family heritage is Italian so I feel like there's this thread of it that runs through me and I have a connection to it. I love like, the, the sort of connected experience of, of making pasta, of rolling pasta dough, of, of the creativity of it. And, and there, there are certain food elements, things like bread or things like pasta that are just such broad canvases that it's kind of infinite what you can do with them. So I, I think probably, you know, as I started to work at SPQR in the first you know year, a couple of years, I didn't want to feel hemmed in by anything, so I started to bring in ingredients like like chilies from South America or, you know, into like a corn ravioli dish and started to bring in some elements that certainly wouldn't ever be traditionally Italian in any way. And I remember I caught a, some flack for it originally because there was really a very uh, strong traditional Italian movement in San Francisco at the time that I showed up in kind of 2009. And but it just wasn't how I, I had to cook the way that I saw the world, and I saw the world through, I think, a broader lens, and I think I, I still do. So, yeah, I, I like that. I like the comfort. There's something comforting to me when people say that my food is Italian because it, it connects me to my heritage and where I feel some of my roots are. I mean, my family still live in Italy. It's so I, I have. No, I didn't a, know that. I have a lot of things that make me feel sort of Italian, but I don't speak fluent Italian. I, you know, I wasn't born there. Um, I'm definitely an American, and so. I think I'd rather be the vanguard of, of sort of what's next for American cooking yeah. in terms of, you know, we're a nation of, of, you know, a lot of us are born of, we're Americans, but we're born of immigrant, of immigrant past. And so that's okay. You know, and I Absolutely. think what, as we've improved our, as part of the greater world of cooking, we've taken, you know, the technique and the, the organization of the, the French kitchen and the inspiration of a myriad of other kitchens and and brought them into a vernacular that's decidedly American that all of the cooks that work for me will go on and not necessarily be cooking traditional Italian food. That's not what I'm teaching them. Um, So what are they going to be? And what, what kind of kitchens will they run? I think it'll be really exciting in the next 10, 20, 30 years to see where food goes in America because we have sort of a cuisine of our own that's legitimate and even people that come from other countries that they have French origin and they're, mm-hmm. they're doing food there's, you know, there's lots of chefs in San Francisco that are, have other influences to their food could it be Moroccan French Korean um, That are all friends and, but none of them are doing anything that's traditional so I think that's, that's where it's all headed and so that's where I'm headed
1: I think it's a good place to be going <laughs> So we're down at South Beach Wine and Food Festival. Have you done this event before?
2: I did it once three years ago. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of fun. So when they asked me to come back, I'm, I'm doing um, a dinner tonight with Ryan Hardy out of New York. Uh, he's great. He's great. And, and, and Evan Funk. Uh, he's of, also uh, great. Out of L.A. <laughs> so when they said that that, that was who I was going to have, the, you know, to cook with tonight, I said, okay, I'll come. You know, like those are great opportunities. How would I Abs- ever connect with someone in LA and someone in New York at the same time, other than coming to a place like this? So,
1: absolutely, I'm jealous. Fun. I'm not going to this dinner. And I saw you the other night at the Italian Bites event, so I know you did that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what what were you what were you serving there? You had a it was a, a rigatoni.
2: Yeah, so we did a rigatoni. It was sponsored by Barilla, and they have a collection pasta that's actually fairly uh, nice. Because it's done through the traditional bronze dye, um, kind of like what we do at the restaurant, um, and then dried, which is still something I wish I could figure out. But it's uh, drying pasta is a really particular process, um, so I'm, I'm really re- interested in that. But you know, all of the pasta, we're so busy at SBQR and. Um, we have a process where we don't need to do it. So we do a lot of extruded pasta, but we don't dry it. So I use that pasta, but what I, the sauce I did with it, which is something, again, this is sort of speaks to my I said, culinary point of view, but we do a white bolognese, which I'm not sure exists. I think I made it up. Um, so a bolognese sauce is a meat sauce traditional to, to Italy and generally has some form of tomato in it uh, amongst other things, especially heavy on the wine. And so what I do is we do a mixture of all white meats, or what I consider white meats, so turkey, chicken, uh, veal, pork, and all that is cooked, spices, we use a lot of wild fennel. Uh, In California it's a complete weed, so again, using something that speaks to where I'm from. Um, And then we use uh, creme fraiche, cream, white stock made from all the bones of all those animals, and... Um, and then we finish it with some ricotta, which we kind of make very fine in a food processor and finish it at the last moment, and sofrito. So you get this sort of intense, uh, creamy, delicious sauce that has all of these these meat flavors in it, but doesn't have that tomato or that acidity in that same way. Um, and I think it just comes together with a lot of chopped herbs and fennel and things together. It comes It's really bright and nice.
1: I had it. It was delicious. So.
2: Um, and I think it's, yeah, and people would, you know, everyone said white bolognese, what's that? And no one had any idea what it was. And then they would taste it. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's good. and That's really what it, what it is. Um, and I think that's, that's again, but it's indicative of my style to sort of take something, um, understand how to make a traditional bolognese sauce really well. And then sort of, once I learn the rules, I'm, I love to throw all the rules out the window.
1: Like a chef, exactly. <laughs> so are, do you have any plans to open another restaurant, or is it something you're considering down
2: the road? I mean, statistically, I, I, I don't think I have a choice. So I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been at SPQR for nine and a half years, um, which is really a long, long tenure for a chef. And you know, I made a deliberate choice to really enjoy my life, and to do I do a lot of things with, with cycling and. and uh, bike racing and things like that outside of work and so I, i've taken the last couple of years for sure to indulge that um you know i've turned 41 this year so in bike years that's super old uh in in human years i don't feel like it's that old although when i was 20 i thought i'd never be this age so
1: <laughs> i hear you uh, i don't yeah. know in chef years uh, what it is but <laughs> in chef years i might be
2: middle-aged okay um, so so yeah, I mean I think statistically probably I'm going to have to open up another restaurant because the trajectory of anyone's career, I mean I'm pretty sure I have to work for another 25 years, so I should I should embellish that, but um but nothing's set in stone yet. So I, I imagine one day there'll be something exciting to talk about, but in, in, the, in the in the short term, you know, I'm I'm always happy to be working with my team at SPQR and developing young chefs into, you know, there's after all of my tenure at SBQR, I think most of the Italian restaurants in San Francisco have a person or two that's worked for me in them somewhere, um, which I, I, I recently sort of realized that. And you know, I'm proud of that because it's, it's, it's someone to be in a kitchen long enough to have enough people come through it um, that they're pretty much staffing all the other restaurants in town is great. But also, uh, you know, I feel like I just started. I still feel like I just started. Yeah. You know, every time I every then time I think start. I know something, I, I realize how little I know, and and so that that keeps me going. And like I said, I realize I got I got a lot a lot longer to go, uh, to of working. So I, I'm I'm glad. I've always viewed cooking as a lifetime occupation, um, and you know I'm glad. Glad to take it, and I'm you know, I'm in no rush. I guess is what I would say. Is I'm, in, you know, cooking cook, one the one in- yeah. main ingredient in re- anything really good to do with cooking is patience. So I try to add that in wherever I can.
1: A lot of wisdom you've just shared with me. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's so wonderful to see your success, your career, and everything you've done, and that we have a a long a long uh, history.
2: Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Bye.
5: This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, a leading specialty food importer and distributor servicing the New York tri-state area and beyond from coast to coast. I'm Jordan Werner-Berry, the host of Modernist Breadcrumbs here on HRN. When it comes to freshly baked artisan bread, it's key to pair it with butter that's made with the same amount of care and attention, and you don't have to go all the way to France to find truly amazing butter. Vermont 83% is an American butter made using traditional French methods. It's produced by a dairy cooperative in New England, and as a Vermont native, I love that this delicious butter is made locally by Family Farms. Bermont 83% is great for cooking, baking, and serving on your table with fresh breads and artisan cheeses. It's proudly distributed by Paris Gourmet to restaurants and grocery stores around the Tri-State area. Learn more about Paris Gourmet and all of their gourmet savory foods and pastry ingredients at parisgourmet.com.
1: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer, and this is my special on the road episode from the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. So next up, I have my interview with Chef John Tizar, And Matthew Acarino actually stayed with us for a bit. So you're gonna get you're gonna get the two of them chatting um, as well. And uh, we 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 cut it a little bit. But you're still going to see there's some background noise. Uh, it's uh, some, some motorcycle revving happening on the streets of South Beach. So maybe it's just going to add a little flavor to the show. But I apologize in advance. So John Teesar is the executive chef and partner at Knife Dallas. A sophisticated destination for in-house dry-aged steaks sourced from nearby Texas farms. In the midst of an influential culinary career spanning nearly four decades, John takes a classically trained chef's approach to steakhouse cuisine. An iconoclastic Anno- celebrity of the food world, John came up as a chef in New York City at 13 Barrow Street, 44 in Hell's Kitchen, Vine, and the Supper Club. He then went on to open two acclaimed restaurants in Dallas that have been named among the best in the country by Bon Appetit, Eater, Gallo, and Esquire. He has garnered praise from Food & Wine and The New York Times. He's appeared on many TV shows, including The Today Show and The Early Show, and is a two-time contestant on Bravo's Top Chef, and he was called the single most talented cook I ever worked with by the late Anthony Bourdain. So here's my interview with John Tisar.
2: I know of John from like 13 Barrel. I know of John. I mean, John was the one that came when I left working for Rick Moonen. And he, he came in and, and replaced me for a time and helped Rick get the restaurant in Vegas open and all that other stuff. And
6: that was a magical time because I had to reinvent myself. And these guys pushed me because I saw the food that they were doing. And I saw how two young guys were running a kitchen. And I was just like, it just brought me back to when I was in Paris and I worked in he, they were very, Rick and Matt, Anthony was gone by the time I had gotten there, but we had met because he worked for Michael Mina out there, and, and I had respect because I knew it was partly his kitchen. But these guys showed me, they brought me back to like a French kitchen and the way you do things, expoing, the way, we, you know, chef finishing dishes. And I had lost all that, like being in Lake Tahoe and kind of being a, a corporate chef with Clark Wolf and, you know, Tahoe, they rolled the sidewalks up at nine o'clock and it's a private restaurant, so we do 50 covers a night. It wasn't challenging. I mean, I was in the Bay Area, I was in Tahoe, I was in Reno. It was a, a wonderful time. Then I went back to Matt, uh, to, to Rick, and Rick was supposed to hire me to be the chef of Vegas, and then we had a falling out, and they stuck me in New York, because he was going to uh, work for Thomas Keller at Per Se, and Anthony was already working for Michael Mina. So I, I walked into Rick Moon's life at, at a crossroad for all of us. It was incredible. because these two superstars were going out on their own and had just achieved, outside of Oceana, a three-star review as a team, because it was all three of them. It was amazing. And you, know, and you had to compete against Laburna Band and Oceana. You know, and Rick was no, a known name, but we had a, it was an uphill climb there. And, and the block always had garbage on it and stuff like that. We had so many, and the rent was $40,000 a month. And what, was the, what are those guys' names? The uh,
2: Harrington's. The Harrington's. <laughs> they were pieces of work. Oh,
6: my God. They, they owned Match. They were partners in Match. So they had the lease. And they wooed Rick over to be their corporate chef. And it's funny. You know, Rick's come full circle because he's closed Vegas. But he had a great 15-year run. When we went out, there was a lot of problems. And then they hired Omar from the foundation room. I came in and took over the kitchens. And, and Rick started making grossing $14, $15 million a year. And he stayed there. He made a life there. So now he's the corporate chef for Perry Steakhouse in Texas. I was like, my, you know, and uh, what's his name? Terzak got him the job. So now it's like we've come full circle. I, I'm, I was the seafood guy with him, and now we're both in Texas selling steak. You know, yeah. It's like a weird thing, but I have a lot of respect for Rick. He, he taught me, uh, he gave me the opportunity to do things like this, to, to be prepared for this world, which is, yeah. The world of festivals is necessary, but they will eat you alive psychologically, financially, physically. But if you're not out there in front of people all the time, cooking really good food, you'll lose out to the TV people all the time. And I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, but I have a career and I have to pay my bills and have a family. And I still have a good 10 or 15 years, and I'm so lucky now because it's so bizarre. Like you, you all know me for a long time, before you met me or and I've been in this business for a long time. And now I'm going to have seven restaurants next year. Uh, five of them licensed, two of them owned. And no partners, no debt. One's going to be in a Ritz-Carlton and taking over the Norman Van Aiken spot at the at the Ritz at, in, in Orlando. I'm going to open in, in Austin with the owners of the South Congress Hotel and the guys who started ACL. Because people see Knife as a, a more affordable but honest steakhouse. So if you put it where people are going to eat steak, and we're talking about wholesome American food, we just found a product that was exceptional, and there's a lot of bullshit in this business with meat. Because people will say, it's grass-fed, it came from here. And there's all these regulations. And living in Texas and marrying a girl from West Texas at the time, and divorced now, but her family was in the ranching business. So I learned the economic side of it, and then I just took it to the product side, like you would look for best uni you can find or the answer is great. I was looking for that cow, we got a lot of So I think, I think chefs are getting a little too grandiose because of all the attention we get, and we need to put a little bit more attention toward the foundation of cooking and teaching this and mentoring this next generation that Scofier really is, you know, or, you know, Catherine Domenici, or, you know, like 300-year-old flour exists for a reason, and we work with it in a special way because we're losing that, and I, you know, I won't be around to see it, but it'd be a shame if we lost all of that history.
1: What led you to, to Texas? And, I mean...
6: I replaced you... the legend Dean Farring. It was, it was, that was the two pivotal moments in my life, working for Rick Moonen and meeting Matt and those guys, and that, working with that team, and going out to Vegas and that whole experience. And then, from that experience, headhunters came and said, would you like to replace Dean Farring at the mansion on Turtle Creek? I'd never been to Texas in my whole life, but I knew who Dean was, and I know what the mansion was. So I looked into it a little more, and we talked, and I beat out a lot of guys to become the next Dean Ferry. And for me, it was like, I looked at the platform and what it did for Dean, and I went in and like, said, I can do the same thing. But in hindsight, I think people thought that was a crazy way to approach it. But I did have a year and a half before the Ritz opened and Dean reopened and kind of recaptured that Dallas momentum, and I had enough time, and I got five stars from Bill Addison, which really, credibility, I got the five mobile stars back. His old boss, Thomas Keller, even sent me a letter, but it was addressed to Dean. It was hilarious. So I had just gotten five mobile stars back, and I get a letter on my desk, and it's, congratulations from Thomas Keller, but it's to Dean Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it somewhere in a box with, like, my wow. my pictures of the Bush Bush family when I was at the mansion. There's something that I've come to, you know, like, I think a lot of people, when they look at Texas, they look at it through politics and stereotypes, and it's just like anything, if you deal with politics and stereotypes, you're really going to miss the heart and soul of what's there. So I'm a New Yorker, I'm a Giant fan, not a Cowboy fan, I'm a Yankee fan, not a Texas Ranger fan. I express my opinions, and people have come to understand and know who I am in it. One more question,
1: so then, what inspired you to start... to open
6: knife. You know, I had Spoon, that little 55-seat seafood restaurant, and it got international acclaim. I mean, I just did everything that I had learned from Rick and Matt and from eating at the Bernadette and and admiring Eric Repair and living in the Hamptons and growing up on the bay and the ocean and having that sense of what fresh seafood and umami was already. And these guys challenged me, and then Rick gave me some validation. And, you know, being behind Rick for three years and not wanting attention and just running kitchens and focusing on food I got the job for Dean so the success of Spoon these investment bankers wanted to take over what was a Kempton Hotel it had kind of run its course there it was a restaurant 214 in there and they said you can take it over but it has to be a steakhouse ah. I really had one of those oh shit moments because the last thing a chef needs is a steakhouse because that really is like the end of your career you know, it's like you take it yeah. easy way out I mean not, yeah. not all the time but it can be it, well it certainly it was wasn't for you no no it was it's been the greatest thing that's ever happened. And we are going to open Spoon, I mean Knife, in uh, Orlando, in Austin, in 2019, and we're doing a project in Laguna Beach, which is a reinvention of Spoon, Knife, and RMC Food in the uh, Laguna Cliffs Resort, right on the marina in Dana Point. Wow. So that's going to be, be open in July we will invite you all to open. I'm going to have. I'm going to invite guest chefs. So hopefully, you'll be on. Invite the me. Coasting. I
1: may just come. No, please you're <laughs> going to
6: come. It's going to be a star-studded opening because we, we've been waiting. You know, I've been doing a lot of these hotel deals lately, and you have to realize, if you're in an urgency to open them, it's never going to happen because they always take somewhere between 12 to 18 months from the time you start the deal. Because it's just the way hotel people work. Right. And then you have to work around a renovation schedule. You know, licensing is great for a chef these days because you don't have to pay bills, you don't have to do all of the rigors, and you really have control of the concept and uh, and what you do. And it's a trade-off because you're giving the hotel the revenue, but I have the safety and then the enhancement of my brand outside of Dallas, which is the greatest, which is what I've wanted to accomplish the whole time. That's what I wanted to do in New York. Be good in New York and then go other places. And I happened to see when I... the, The blessing of replacing Dean was going into a secondary market with a lot of political and... Geographical preconceived notions about it, it was easy to go in and kick the doors down and lay the groundwork for guys like Matt McAllister to, su- to succeed and to have Bruno come back and be the chef of the mansion and stuff like that because yeah. people weren't eating that food before I got to the mansion and they gave me that opportunity. So, it's, you know, things you have to look at the, your own path and you have to see how you can seek true opportunity and, and integrity. Like that, this man has integrity. That's what I love about him. Everything he does is done the right way proper way or not at all and he has the smallest kitchen in the world and he's got these kids i don't even know where he finds them he could be in rome and you go to that restaurant and the food is impeccable and the service is amazing and the wine selection it's san francisco it's like it's what i would expect out of a restaurant in san francisco because i think san francisco's chicago new york san francisco the best food cities in america and i think you have more in San Francisco, because of the produce, you know all that stuff, and you have everything. Chez Penny's Cafe is still my, one of my favorite restaurants in the entire world. Yeah. You know stuff like that, I and mean, and that's what American food should be. Like we're we're swinging so far to the extreme or the esoteric, but that's not sustainable. So I will sit on my steak empire for now and laugh as an old man and watch young kids try to make it in this business.
1: Well, you've had can... it will
6: and help them.
1: You've had an amazing career. And I, yeah. and, and I was at your chef's club dinner you did a couple years ago, and the food was phenomenal. Mac- and I loved, they're not doing that anymore in the private room, but it was such an amazing experience. That was another experience. great
6: opportunity. Because you know, I, I was never, uh, I never was a James Beard finalist like Matt Acarino. I was never a food and wine best new chef. I had Scott Bryan to deal with instead of, <laughs> uh, so I, I didn't have those uh, avenues to enter into this thing. So Rick really, and, and replacing Dean, really invent, reinvented my career and put me in a place where someone would want to put me on Top Chef at the age of 54 years old because I was the most hated chef in Dallas. But I wasn't, and I'm not really now. So you see how sometimes the perseverance, I think the inspiration is, I think you should just never stop believing in yourself and know what good food is and just be a purveyor of it and the rest should come there's any justice in the world if you work hard and you cook good food people are gonna find you and there's less and less of that in the world these days
1: no that's a great lesson
6: a lot of mediocrity out there sorry but
1: okay last (laughs) thing so we're we're here at south beach wine and food festival and i saw you last night at the burger bash Yes. pimento cheeseburger
6: yeah i love that you know it's uh, delicious we didn't get to use our meat you know but it's okay and and i for me it's like that's what the, uh, the legacy of Josh Ozersky because we have another hamburger. I didn't want to do the Ozerski last night because I just think it's, there's too many friends here, too many memories. It was just like too yeah. too much. So we did this pimento burger which Texas Monthly and a lot of other people thought was like one of the best burgers in Texas and when you put it on that 44 Farms beef, it's just simple pimento cheese and a squishy bun and I love the meat from 44 Farms and I stole Bobby Flay's pimento cheese recipe like 10 years ago and I've been using it ever since.
1: Bobby, if you're and listening he knows. He knows. now, no, you he
6: know. Knows. Bobby knows. He judged something for Bank of America because I was just on beat Bobby Flay, and I, I think I beat him. But I, you know, the judges, the last judge didn't. He winked at Bobby when he made the decision, so it was like, you know, take it on the chance, It's TV. So Bob comes down to Texas, and Bank of America books us to do this event, and it was a guacamole contest against the executives of the bank. Except he was the cook, and I was the judge. So. And when he walked in the door, I told him, it's "I said, I loft. said, you know, you know, you're not going to win this. You know that, don't you? <laughs> no how good your guacamole is. You know." Yeah. And he just he said, "He you knows. I know." <laughs> so that, that's the fun yeah. part of our job, you know. Yeah. And and being you know friends with iconic chefs for being around, I tell everybody, if you're around long enough, everybody will know who you are. You know, and, and we don't want to forget the past. And it's terrible that Tony's dead, and you know Rick's almost retiring. And, you know, and Thomas is like in 25 restaurants and, and the French Laundry is not as focused. You know, they, these things will run their course. But what's the, what you have to, I mean, your listeners, I'm asking, what's, what's next that's not esoteric and has integrity and is real and true to the foundations of American cooking? Because that's where we really need to go. I think. That's how I approach every restaurant I do. Oh, well, that's a good way
1: to end. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. so much.
3: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Akiko Katayama, and I'm the host of Japan Needs here on HRN. By interviewing fascinating personalities in Japanese culinary culture, I try to demystify Japanese cuisine. My guests have included sake brewers, tea experts, Japanese whiskey experts, and sushi chefs. You can find Japan Needs whenever you listen to podcasts and on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
1: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer, and this is my special On the Road episode from the South Beach Wine and Food Festival 2019. So for my third and final interview, I caught up with Adina Sussman. She is a cookbook author, food writer, recipe and product developer, and consultant based in Tel Aviv. She was on my show back, if you want to go back to the archives, episode 20 And she was on with South Beach Wine and Food Festival's founder and executive director, Lee Schrager. We did a show about their book that had come out, Fried and True. So, um, yeah, check that out. And it's good to catch up with Adina because I was five years ago. So, Adina's new Israeli cookbook, Sababa, Fresh Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen, will be released this September. Her three most recent collaborations, Cravings and Cravings Hungry for More with Chrissy Teigen and Sprinkles the Baking Book with Candace Nelson, were New York Times bestsellers. Along with co-authoring 11 cookbooks and writing short stack editions Tahini, she's written about Israeli cooking, food, and culture for an array of publications, including Food and Wine, the Wall Street Journal, Travel and Leisure, Condé Nast Traveler, Epicurious, and Gourmet. So, uh, here's my final interview with Adina Sussman.
4: But tell me about your event. It was fun. It was a Shabbat dinner with a admoni and um, a chef from Israel, Amos Sion, who I have been to his restaurant, and back um, to Baker. Oh, nice. Yeah. He lives in Israel part-time now. Oh, does he? Mm-hmm. Near so, you? Um, he lives in Jerusalem, but we hang out sometimes. Um, it was really nice. It was a kosher dinner, so um, everything was actually made in advance because you can't cook on Shabbat. So we made it all, and then it was put in hot boxes, and we plated it like later in the evening. Oh, wow. Like, you can't cook with live fire on
1: Shabbat. But South Beach, the Wine and Food Festival, wanted to do a Shabbat
4: dinner. They wanted so to do a kosher dinner. They a- so it was up in Surfside where there are a lot of kosher people. And people walked from their homes. People who keep the Sabbath. It was really fun. There were great wines, Israeli wines from Reconati. And it was a cool crowd. It was really fun. Really fun. We all ended up hanging out a lot because we did a lot of our prep in advance, so there wasn't that much to do on the spot. It was fun, though.
1: How many people? A hundred. It was nice. You make it look easy, right? You just
4: cook <laughs> just, for a hundred. You know, they make it look easy. Like, I'm a home cook, so I get a little... I sweat the details more. For them, it's nothing. You know, they do stuff like this all the time. They're making, you know... Amos Sion was making 3,000 portions for an event tomorrow. 3,000 portions. That's just crazy. But, yeah. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Are you doing anything? No, I'm done. Okay. Yeah, I'm just relaxing, seeing friends. Now that I live overseas, it's a nice opportunity for me to get back and connect with people from the industry and see my friends who I don't get to see as much.
1: Nice. I
4: love it. I love that I get to see you down
1: here. I know. Tell me about your book. I saw you posted the cover
4: the other day, and it looks gorgeous. Yeah, um, it's called Sababa, and it's about how I like to live and eat in Tel Aviv, basically. I live right near the Carmel Market, so there are a lot of recipes that are just inspired by the produce that I pick up and all the different influences that make up Israeli cuisine and how the cuisine is changing, and also just kind of how I put my own spin on things. Like, I make a lot of the condiments that are uh, staples of the Israeli kitchen, like skrug hot sauce and harissa and preserved lemons and try and find interesting ways to use them you know so you don't know, make one thing or buy one thing and it just sits in your fridge sort of getting lonely so yeah it's, it's a really fun book and there are a lot of pictures of the Shook and some chefs there and, and other people in the food world taught me how to make dishes um, for the book which was really really nice it's great can't believe it's happening after I read, co-authoring so many books to have my own book coming out it's incredible I'm so happy for you Thank how you. many how many books have you co-authored Approximately. <laughs> In the last nine years, I've done 11. Wow. Yeah. And you've done two with Chrissy Teigen. Two with Chrissy Teigen and um, two with Lee Schrager. Right, right. <laughs> Fried Chicken. Fried Chicken at Breakfast. Um, I just worked with David Bertka on his book, actually. Oh, wow. 20 a nice. month. Um, and then a variety of other ones. She, Candace Nelson from Sprinkles. And um, I've written a couple of dessert
1: books, and I uh, two natural foods books, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Adina. All right, we're going to jump right into my solo dining experience, because of course I have one from South Beach. So here I'm doing something, I think this is a first though for me, because it's a takeaway version of a solo dining experience, and it's at Joe's Stone Crab. Here's the rundown. The location: 11 Washington Avenue, Miami Beach, Florida. The concept: legendary spot for Florida stone crabs. The owner: Steven Sowitz, the great-grandson of Joe's founder, Joe Weiss. So why did I go? Because I love stone crabs and I think uh, Joe's is pretty much a must-visit when you're on the beach. My experience. So late afternoon between events, I made my way to Joe's for what I call my annual picnic at South Point Park. Now, I guess I'm sharing my secret because, you know, it's very hard to get a reservation at Joe's. But takeout is the door right next door to the entrance to the restaurant. And I go in there, no line. And it's just as delicious and fabulous, same, same stone crab. So uh, I ordered at the takeout counter. I asked for the minimum order. The manager kindly assisted me in getting uh, what I wanted. He rang me up. I waited less than a minute. I took my takeout bag to go, grabbed some utensils, and I was off. And the staff was very kind and helpful. So what did I get? I had the medium claw stone crabs that came with the warm melted butter and creamy spicy mustard sauce on the side. And it also came with a bag of fresh rolls and butter. My take, I just love it. It's really one of my fam- favorite meals to have. And the mustard sauce is so good. I mean, this is, this is really seriously great dipping sauce. So um, highly recommend. So the ambiance. So if you go into Joe's, the takeout area, place. It's a, it's a large room. There is there is seating. Uh, there's a big bar. Uh, there's It's casual, uh, but it, it's designed as a to-go place. So I took it. I walked a few minutes over to the water. I sat outside in the grass. I watched cruise ships as they were leaving the port of Miami to go out to sea, and uh, I had a, a nice time. So I'd say it's perfect for satisfying your stone crab cravings. Interesting tidbit. Joe Weiss opened as a small lunch counter on Miami Beach in 1913, serving his top-notch fish sandwich and fries. The rest is history. Personal fun fact. So if I don't get to Joe's, when I go down to Miami, uh, my parents live in the Pinecrest area, and there's a place called Captain's Tavern Seafood Market, and they also have stone crabs, and they're quite fabulous. So that's my second recommendation. The cost of my meal at Joe's was $28 and that's including everything. Would I go back? Yes, I would. Website is joesstonecrab.com. So that's the show. Uh, I hope, I hope you enjoyed my interviews. A big thanks to South beach wine and food festival team and to Lee Schrager and the team at the door. Uh, I always have a great time at this event and, uh, it's so well produced, uh, Really, kudos to you. Next year, they have the dates out. It's February 19th to 23rd. That's 2020, so mark your cal- calendar. And their website's sobewff.org if you want to find more information. Also, big thanks to my three interviewees. Matthew Acarino, you, you can find him on social media at Matt and and his website's sbqrsf.com. Also to John teaser He's at Chef John Tizar and his website's johnteesar.com and knifedallas.com. And to Adina Sussman. You can follow her at Adina Sussman, and her website's her name, adinasussman.com. So thank you to all of them, and thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR, at All Industry, my Facebook page is All in the Industry, websites bayerpublicrelations.com and sherrybayer.com. All of our shows are archived at Heritage Radio network.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Max, and to my engineer, Matt, who helped put this whole show together for me with my edited clips. I really appreciate it. And next week, my show will be live. It's with Food and Wines Editor-in-Chief Hunter Lewis. He's going to be here in the studio with me. So I hope you'll tune in then. I'm Sherry Bayer. Till next week. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.
3: Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, good radio supported by you. For freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.